Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. In the United States, right-wing attacks on transgender people continue, with hundreds of anti-trans bills proposed in legislatures. Parallel to this, there's an unending stream of blatant and more subtle anti-trans ideas in the media, including in liberal publications like the New York Times. Uh, These were ably skewered by a good recent episode of the podcast, If Books Could Kill, called The New York Times War on Trans Kids. There were at least 38 trans people killed in the U.S. in 2022, according to the Human Rights Campaign, most of whom were Black or Latinx. We mustn't forget that along with anti-trans legislation, we're seeing another kind of assault on bodily autonomy in the U.S., legislation at the state level against abortion. The situation in so-called Canada isn't nearly as dire, though that should be no cause for complacency. Trans people are assaulted and murdered here too, with Indigenous and Black trans people being disproportionately harmed. And the far right, which fortunately is a lot weaker here than in the U.S., has shifted its focus from anti-mask and anti-vax protests to targeting trans people, especially events with drag performers. There have been more such protests so far in 2023 than in all of 2021, and the number of this year is expected to be more than last year. Disturbingly, the liberal political establishment in the U.S. and Canada has taken no real action to counter the growing threat to trans people's existence, as Misha Falk put it in an article published in Midnight Sun last year, which I'll include in the show notes for this episode. In order to help fight the right's anti-trans agenda as effectively as possible, socialists and other leftists need to understand it. What are they trying to achieve? How are they organizing? How can we fight back more effectively? So I'm really glad to have two guests joining me on this episode. Could you introduce yourselves? I I guess I'll go ahead and jump in. Um, Hi, David. Thanks for uh, inviting me to participate in this important conversation. Uh, My name is Eric Maroney. I'm joining the discussion today from Connecticut, where I teach community college English. I'm also a graduate student at the University of Connecticut. Uh, More importantly, though, I'm a proud union member. Um, I'm also active with the Tempest Collective, which is a modest socialist project here in the U.S. Um, you can read about us at tempestmag.org. Um, relevant to this conversation, I identify as a transgender man, and I've done some writing about the present anti-trans political reaction. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Skylar. Uh, I use they, them pronouns, and I've been monitoring the far right in Canada uh, in particular since the uh, occupation of Ottawa last year, the convoy occupation. And I've been involved in a lot of organizing against the far right, uh, both locally and in eastern Ontario. Um, in particular, in recent months, as you've mentioned, they've turned towards uh, anti-trans and anti-drag uh, organizing. And I've been involved in organizing some of the uh, successful defenses of drag events uh, in recent months. Thank you both. So before we get into the attacks, let's start by laying out the history of equality rights gains for trans people. 
Eric, can you start us off by talking a little bit about the U.S.? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I Actually, I think this is a really useful place to start, too, because in order to understand the present backlash, right, we have to consider what it is it that the right is reacting to. Um, and so I think in the U.S., uh, queer people have experienced significant legislative and cultural gains in a relatively short period of time. So sort of thinking back as recently as 2004, um, same-sex marriage was illegal in 49 of the 50 U.S. states. And it actually wasn't until 2015, just eight years ago, um, that same-sex marriage was recognized and protected at the federal level at all. And this was the result of um, a Supreme Court decision uh, known as uh, Obergefell v. Hodges. Um, but parallel to the, the marriage equality uh, movement and sort of extending beyond it has also been this push for transgender rights and recognition. And this push has included things like a modest increase in access to gender affirming care, kind of streamlining these more bureaucratic procedures for changing one's name and gender marker on government or municipal ID forms, as well as a sort of heightened cultural visibility. Um, and I think that 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 last part, that cultural visibility is important too. Um, for example, in 2014, um, Time Magazine, a popular um, American magazine, features transgender actress Laverne Cox on its cover, and it's uh, what has become known as the transgender tipping point, which is sort of heralded as this point in U.S. culture where we've reached a turning point in acceptance for transgender people. Um, to sort of continue giving a little bit of context um, to br bring us up to the, the, the present moment, 2016, we see President Obama lift a ban on transgender people serving in the military. Um, this ban was an extension uh, of a ban on uh, gay, lesbian, and bisexual uh, people who were serving openly in the military. And just, la uh, just a few years ago, 2021, we see the Biden-Harris administration, the pres present presidential administration, um, ruling that an ex-gender market be permitted on passport documents. And if I could just just want to say just a few more words about all this. Um, you know, I think that there are there are segments of the left that will dismiss these wins and advances as being kind of inconsequential for working class people or non-elite queer people, like meaning inconsequential to those who are not interested in marriage or who oppose the institution of marriage or or inconsequential to those who are anti-imperialist as one should be, um, right, like those who oppose the military. But I think that this position is an oversimplification. Um, and I think that it misses some of the significant gains of the last several decades. So absolutely, yes, gender affirming care remains out of reach for many. Um, even when it's not priced out of reach or legislated out of reach, the infrastructure is just not there. So in parts of the country, people spend literally years waiting to be connected with clinics and adequate providers. But what's more, right, gender affirming care has not always been covered by health insurance, period. Right. So, of course, um, in the U.S., we have a privatized, predominantly employer based health insurance system that has a limited public option. But. Um, not all of these plans cover gender affirming care. Those that do, for those that do, this is a relatively recent change. Um, just anecdotally, um, you know, I had my first gender affirming surgical procedure in 2009. I was 25 years old. I spent $14,000 out of pocket. I used a student loan to pay for it and spent the next 10 years paying it back. So I share all this to emphasize that even while these advances are limited and incomplete, 
they are very much relevant. Um, and I'll wrap up in just a few minutes here because I think that like while we're thinking about the advances made by queer and trans people, we also want to be aware that at the same time these advances have been made, it's equally important to note that over the same period, really the last 20 years, um, that we've we've seen a real decline in living standards for many Americans, right? There's a period that's been punctuated by what folks describe as multiple and intersecting crises, one that has brought on, if not a permanent precarity itself, certainly a, a permanent threat of precarity. Um, and, you know, and we can go through some of some of the details as to what that looks like. Um, but I'll I'll pause there for now. Thanks. Skylar, do you want to say something about the Canadian situation? Uh, yes. So I think in Canada, there are sort of a lot of parallels to the American situation in terms of growing acceptance and growing sort of legislative victories for the 2SLGBTQIA community. Um, I think in general, we've been probably a few years ahead of our friends to the South in terms of if things like uh, legalizing same-sex marriage and other sort of landmark uh, legislative victories in terms of uh, 2S LGBTQIA rights. Um, I also think that we're in a similar situation with the sort of growing acceptance. Um, I know in particular among uh, students and uh, young people, uh, there does seem to be a lot more uh, acceptance uh, of 2S LGBTQIA identities in in schools, uh, in classroom settings, in that sort of thing, than there was probably 20 years ago. Um, so you have a lot more students who these days who are feeling comfortable with coming out and that sort of thing. In terms of human rights legislation, uh, there was Bill C-16, uh, which was passed in 2017, that uh, amended the Canadian Human Rights Act and added gender identity and expression to that. Uh, this bill had been, people had been pushing for something like this for about 10 years or so. Um, often this, there would be a bill that would end up getting either hung up in a committee or it would die when an election was called and start all over again. Um, it's also, uh, if you remember, it is the bill that got Jordan Peterson famous when he became first prominent for either misunderstanding or intentionally mischaracterizing this bill as an assault on his freedom of speech. Um, and most provinces also added gender identity to the list of prohibited grounds for discrimination around the same time, kind of the 2010s, in their various human rights legislation. And uh, on the topic of healthcare in Canada, um, we do have, you know, a public healthcare system, which does have uh, some uh, gender affirming care for it, but included. However, uh, contrary to what your American listeners may think, our Canadian healthcare system does have a lot of gaps, uh, both in terms of certain aspects of gender affirming care, which aren't covered, uh, as well as just other gaps in general for things like dental vision, that sort of thing. So a lot of people do have to rely on private insurance, which is generally through work for certain uh, as certain procedures and certain aspects of healthcare. And of course, this is a big issue because a lot of trans non-binary people face discrimination in the labor market. So they're probably less likely to have good health benefits through their employment. Thanks. Yeah. And also just as a footnote to that, and of course, the public system in Canada uh, means that the way it's organized is that access varies a lot regionally, um, yeah. even within a single province, right? Um, 
so thank you both for laying that context out. Can we start, Eric, with you uh, in talking about the organizations that are today leading the assault on transgender people in the United States and how the assault has evolved to the point where it's at now? Um, okay, so thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, I think that we can think about the U.S. Uh, anti-trans assault as coming in three overlapping forms. Um, so first, we're experiencing these waves of reactionary state-level laws and policies that are targeted at restricting trans people's civic participation, as well as access to care. Um, these are laws that prohibit trans access from things like scholastic sports, um, from access to public facilities that ban youth access to gender-affirming care, but are also seeking to limit adult access to that care as well. Um, in 2002, um, which is the last year that we have full data for, there were over 300 anti-LGBT bills that were introduced at state legislators. Um, now, uh, according to the Human Rights Campaign, which is a, like a liberal um, LGBT advocacy group here, only 29 of those bills passed, or 10% of them um, were signed into law. But at the same time, the laws that have passed have had a real chilling effect. Um, and uh, I know we don't have time to go into all of them, but I think that it would be useful to, to just highlight some. For, for folks who want to know more, um, I would encourage them to check out the word of Aaron Reed, who's an independent journalist and activist, doing really important work um, to track these bills. So what I wanted to talk about was Tennessee, the state of Tennessee, where last month two bills were signed into law um, that literally are making it impossible to live as a visible trans person in that state. Um, the first law defines gender as immutable and biologically determined by one's genes, right? And we can leave aside for a moment that not even geneticists are on the same page about this. Um, the second bill, building off that, makes it a crime, a misdemeanor for the first offense, a class E felony for the second offense, to perform what is called adult cabaret, where that performance might Right, could possibly be viewed by a child. So importantly, included in the definition of adult cabaret is male to female impersonation. So it's a it's a law that is intended to be a ban on drag, um, but it's not difficult to see how this legislation will impact trans and gender nonconforming people um, simply as they seek to move about in public space. So uh, I was just reading that there is a temporary ban or a temporary injunction on this law going into effect. But like, nevertheless, just like the breadth of it is absolutely chilling. So I think that like the, the legislative wave we can think of as one arm of the anti-trans assault. The sort of second form that I see it coming from is very closely related to the first. And these are um, the sort of like right-wing populist political figures, right? They're part of the populist wing of the Republican Party or what we might call like the MAGA wing of the Republican Party, like Donald Trump's wing. There are individuals like Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, um, Georgia Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, but also media pundits like Tucker Carlson, who really are amplifying this anti-trans rhetoric with the goal of ginning up um, a right-wing base, right, first for the midterm elections, but then again, looking forward to the 2014 presidential race. And of course, not to be outdone, former President Trump um, did release a re-election campaign video where he promised to pass a law in all 50 states, putting a stop um, to uh, gender-affirming care. So these are the right-wing voices that tend to dominate the news cycle. And what they do is they provide cover to the groups and individuals who are pushing legislation. Um, 
Mother Jones, um, uh, uh, the the magazine Mother Jones, uh, a reporter, our investigative reporter Madison Pauly recently got her hands on a trove of emails between state level legislators and these very well-funded anti-trans activists, um, folks like the legal giant, giant, the Alliance Defending Freedom, which also operates not only in the United States, but elsewhere. Um, but this is a group that has in, intimately uh, involved with overturning Roe, has also been intimately involved in pushing this wave of anti-trans legislation. Um, but also organizations like the American College of Pediatrics, which is also a conservative anti-choice group. Um, so what we're seeing really is a significant collaboration between these well-funded anti-trans activist groups and state-level legislators, um, such that the bills being introduced across the country are sharing both the same language, the same framing, and the same strategies um, in terms of getting them passed. Um, the Alliance Defending Freedom is like a particularly frightening organization. Um, it's it's like a it's a legal it's a legal front. It's an organization that has an operating budget of like over forty five million dollars annually. Um, they're a group that receives funding from a variety of conservative foundations, uh, groups like Morgan Stanley Global Impact Partners. They have ties to the Koch Brothers Philanthropy, as well as the American Legislative Council or ALEC. Um, and so, like, we can think about, like, the – so the, the point that I'm trying to get at here is that, like, yeah, there's seemingly this groundswell of, like, anti-trans reaction, but, like, I think we also have to realize that there's a real sort of astroturf flavor to a lot of it, right? Like, a lot of it's really sort of manufactured. Um, the third sort of form, and I would say the most dangerous, is the anti-trans uh, assault that that takes the form of street activists, right? And so these – are the groups and individuals who are attempting to shut down the drag story hour events, who are protesting local school boards. Um, and this is where you're seeing the hard right element come into play. Um, and I'll just share another, another anecdote, right? So last month um, in Akron, Ohio, there was a protest, um, a gathering to protest a right wing story hour event. And um, what you had were hundreds of Proud Boys members, um, people with White Lives Matters, you know, uh, placards and, and banners, um, you know, protesters descending on um, a park, Wadsworth Memorial Park. And, and what they were doing is they were disrupting this charity event. So there was a drag story hour event. It was there as a charity event. It was raising money for the survivors of the mass shooting that took place at Club Q, which is an LGBTQ bar in Colorado Springs, where last year um, five people were murdered and 25 people were, were injured. Um, if you you can see the cell phone footage from from this this right wing protest where there are literally Nazis like waving swastika flags, chanting things like "pedophiles get the rope" and "Weimar conditions, Weimar solutions." Of course, a reference to the Nazi ascendancy over the Weimar reform period in in Germany. Um, and I'll I'll wrap up in a minute here because like although I think that is the most sort of dangerous element. Also important to recognize is that in the mix, we're also beginning to see these parents' rights advocates, right? These groups that have developed a kind of distrust for public schools, who are equally um, kind of vocal in their opposition to critical race theory. Um, these are the folks who are concerned with the banning of books, are concerned with the kinds of pronouns that their children are using uh, in school. Um, and, but they've also... Um, sort of developed this successful rhetoric around a distrust of medicine, right, which has been connected to the anti-vax or the anti-mask protests um, that we saw during the COVID period. Um, where I live, interestingly, the anti-mask group 
um, has rebranded itself to the internship to become the anti-gender group. Like, so they've completely changed, changed their name. Um, and, um, you know, perhaps we can come back to this, but, but I, I actually attended a, on, on transgender day of visibility, I, I attended a sort of a parents' rights protest to just kind of get a flavor of what was going on. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there for now. If it's relevant, well, we can pick it back up, but um, I'll leave it there for now. I'm sure the flavor was horrible. Um, so my next question then is, how have the mainstream U.S. Uh, liberal LGBT um, rights groups and leaders of the Democratic Party responded to this threefold assault that you've been talking about, Eric? Okay, awesome. Yeah, so I think that um, like the mainstream liberal LGBTQ rights groups are still predominantly relying on a legal strategy. Um, so for instance, here in the US, um, while people like Chase Strangio, who is the spokesperson for the ACLU, have been really sharp rhetorically on this issue, um, the conclusion, right, is 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 always to lean into this, this legal strategy. So neither the American Civil Liberties Union nor the human rights campaign have called for local or national demonstrations. Um, instead, these are organizations that are directing supporters to donate money to legal campaigns that are aimed at either preventing or overturning um, the anti-trans legislation. And I think that, you know, I think the legal strategies are important, like absolutely important. But I think that without a ground game, the effectiveness of a legal strategy is always going to be blunted. Um, I think it's a little more difficult to comment about liberal politicians. Um, what I mean by that is that um, it's it's probably a little bit harder to like communicate um, kind of kind of like a, a broad conclusion. Uh, the Democrats at the national level did pass a somewhat um, symbolic but also consequential bill recognizing same-sex marriage. Right. So as I had explained earlier. The U.S. got same-sex marriage through a Supreme Court decision. It was the same process that we got access to abortion rights, which was then overturned by a later Supreme Court um, decision. So while the federal the federal legislation that was passed is somewhat symbolic, it, it is also consequential in recognizing or codifying same-sex marriage. Um so, um, but importantly, as a caveat to conservatives, it does allow for religious exemption. Um, at the state level, um, there are just some jurisdictions where Republican strongholds are preventing any kind of meaningful resistance from political leaders, not from ordinary people, right? Like ordinary people are going to the state houses and raising their voices and doing what they can to stand in opposition to these really heinous bills. But there is really limited meaningful resistance from political um, Democratic political leaders who are in Republican stronghold. But there, there's this other sort of odd phenomenon that's happening where in liberal states, like where I live, there's this very symbolic legislation that's being passed that does like very little to actually help ordinary people. So for instance, um, as I mentioned, I live in Connecticut and Governor Lamont um, has signed what is referred to as a trans sanctuary law. Um, you know, you can't make this stuff up. Um, but there are parts of the country where um, if, if you were found to um, be allowing your child access to gender affirming care, you know, the Department of Children and Families can investigate and take your children away. Um, so a sanctuary law essentially allows families to to migrate right to a liberal state with no reciprocity. Right. That there is there'll be no communication between you know school systems or, or you know, legal jurisdictions or whatever. Um, so, yeah, but there's 
also no money to support people when they come. There's no care infrastructure for any kind of influx of queer youth that might be coming here. Um, so, you know, I, I think that while they're, they're important, they also, without funding, kind of add to that lack of credibility, right, that, that the anti-trans forces already have, um, sorry, like the, the lack of faith that anti-trans um, forces already have in the government, right, the distrust of schools, um, the distrust of, the di- like, the distrust of government. Um, I'll just leave that there. I don't know if it makes any sense at all, but... <laughs> For sure. And I have one other question before we move to talk about um, things going on north of the border. Uh, and that's, what's your take on on the extent to which the anti-trans legislation has popular support yeah. on the ground in, in, in the U.S.? No, that's a great question. Um, so I was, I was like, in order to answer that question, like, I didn't know how to answer that question. So I was, look, I was looking at a poll, um, and uh, it was a PBS poll, and the poll was noting that a majority of Americans actually they still oppose this legislation. That's 54% um, oppose the legislation, including at legislation that's aimed at preventing youth access to gender-affirming care. But unfortunately, that number is down 15 points from just a year ago, right? So just a year ago, we were looking at more like 70%. Um, and so what this shows is that the right is winning the rhetorical battle here, right? And the consequences for that are, are very dangerous. Um, so I think that that speaks to the urgency of our side um, getting organized uh, and, 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 and figuring out how to build broader coalition. So circling back to the conversation we've been having and circling back to some of your earlier questions about the response from the Democratic Party or the response from liberal officials, um, as well as the question of who can be relied on and who can't be relied on in order to blunt the attack on queer and trans people, um, as well as defend against the growth of the right generally. Um, And I really want to emphasize this notion that liberal politicians are not coming to save us. Um, You know, just as we're recording this episode, President Biden has now released new guidance concerning transgender athletes in schools. Uh, Biden's new policy guidance disallows outright bans on trans athletes, but it also opens the door to legitimizing the rights claims about trans athletes, specifically about trans women and girls. Um, So while this policy disallows blanket bans, it does allow bans that would, quote, minimize harm. Um, And critics of the policy have really rightly pointed out that it reads like a how-to, essentially providing a roadmap for the right uh, on how to enact discriminatory bans without violating the legislation that protects transgender and gender variant people. Um, And the criteria that's been offered for determining whether one's transgender status is, um, can can be the cause of potential harm to sex segregated sports, it's so broad, right? So it includes things like gender markers on birth certificates, on driver's license, on passports, but also um, some of the stuff that the liberal establishment has really pushed back against so far, which are these invasive medical testing or even examinations. Um, So I think there's two things that I want to emphasize here. Um, One, yes, there are absolutely limits to the effectiveness of human rights legislation, but in the U.S., we don't even have that. Um, So, for example, instead what we have is we have different parties that are arguing over whether or not the word gender, which is present in our human rights anti-discrimination legislation, if that word even extends to transgender people, right, or gender identity. So while we may have policy in place, that interpretation of that policy has not necessarily been codified in our favor. 
Um, the second point that I want to make is that betrayals by the liberal establishment are not new, um, but they take on greater urgency in a period of right-wing ascendancy, um, particularly when there's this hard right or fascist elements that are afoot. Um, any kind of cover uh, or legitimacy that is being given to these forces will only increase their ability to grow. Um, now is not the time for centrist solutions. Uh, there can really be no middle way. Yeah, I think that's really well put. And history is so full of examples of you know, liberal ruling class forces doing precisely this uh, and, you know, basically not actually engaging in a, a battle of ideas um, against, you know, around this question of gender segregation and gender identity in sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, their perception that somehow this is a difficult uh, argument and therefore just, you know, making a move which is going to only put wind in the sails of the of the right wing assault. Right. Absolutely. I mean, we saw this move, too, with like the response to the police backlash, too. Right. The um, the liberal establishment really like backpedaling almost immediately. Right. As, as they sort of as they gain uh, as they gain a stronghold in office, um, shifting back to reforms that we know are not going to work, returning to the you know law and order kind of rhetoric. It, it's, it's it's almost as if, you know, there's there's this, this like acute and sudden amnesia uh, as to what's happened in the last even five years. And I think it's just another thing we could add is that this is uh, one of those examples of where arguments about uh, culture, right, um, and things that happen outside of official politics, like in the realm of sports, actually are really important. They have lots of political implications for how ordinary people make sense of the world. Right? And uh, so if you if we don't take on the argument in the realm of sports, then what's next, right? Uh, it's definitely an opening the right can use to move in against trans people on other fronts. Yeah, you know, I, I, yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. I mean, there's a reason why we're seeing, right? Yeah, culture does matter. That's what that's like. We're seeing the the right attacks on the drag story hours as being emblematic, right, of and working in the same sort of uh, working the same current uh, as as the the anti trans legislation, right? They're all sort of part of the same push, um, but oftentimes it's the cultural battles that get amplified um, into the sort of broader broader discourse and broader experience that that ordinary working class people have. Yeah, so absolutely. Thanks. Let's turn to talk about so-called Canada. Um, Skylar, what are we seeing here? Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, Canada was a few years ahead of the states on a lot of LGBT rights issues, and uh, it seems like we might just be a few years behind of the states on this being rolled back. Um, we haven't really seen the sort of legislative attacks on trans people in Canada that we've seen in the states, at least not at the provincial or federal level. Um, outside of perhaps Alberta, where Premier Danielle Smith has a lot of connections to the far right, there doesn't seem to be as much political appetite for this sort of thing yet. Um, on the federal level, while the People's Party of Canada, a far-right party that split from the Conservative Party, is very openly anti-trans, and they received about 5% of the vote last election, uh, they have so far failed to win any seats, so they haven't had any presence in Parliament yet. And in terms of the Conservative Party, they seem to be trying to walk a bit of a narrow path on this issue and try to say as little as possible. Their current leader, Pierre Polyev, he won the leadership with a lot of support from the whole convoy figures. And he's trying to build sort of a right-wing populist coalition. Um, Though his challenge right now is that he wants to build the right-wing populist coalition that will both appeal to right-wing populists 
and try to peel back some of the support from the PPC, which may have in part cost them the last election, but also doesn't want to alienate mainstream voters with the sort of unpopular social conservative conservatism that has um, negatively impacted the conservative party's chances in previous elections. So aside from a few figures in the conservative party who at least rhetorically occasionally will show support for the trans community and not really do much on that, uh, they tend to be silent on the issue. Um, where we're seeing a lot of the organizing happening right now is on the school board level. Um, and I think in general, what we're seeing in Canada is sort of an alignment of forces coming out of the convoy occupation of Ottawa last February with the more established anti-trans, anti-woke, uh, sort of Christian nationalist forces and some of the groups that have been organizing against things like uh, comprehensive sex ed. Uh, parents' rights, so-called parents' rights kind of groups. Um, in terms of these more established forces, they are largely kind of the usual suspects who've been around social co conservative movements for a long time. Uh, Anti-abortion groups, uh, campaign life coalition, uh, groups like uh, the groups that were opposing sex ed, the Ontario sex ed curriculum, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, one particularly uh, interesting example is a group called Action for Canada. They started out out of British Columbia. They initially started out with the focus on anti-immigrant and anti-Muslim politics. And over the years, they have sort of morphed and changed their focus. And now they're focused primarily on school boards and on anti-trans uh, politics and on opposition to uh, sex ed or, you know, any sort of pro-2S-LGBTQIA uh, inclusive policies in schools. Um, I think another big aspect in Canada is the media coverage. Um, we have uh, a lot of media coverage from, in particular, from the post-media chain of outlets uh, has been really heavily pushing uh, anti-trans narratives. And post-media does control a large portion of Canada's media ecosystem, including many local papers, which may not have the sort of reputation as kind of right-wing tabloids or right conservative media outlets as the National Post itself does. Um, but there have also been a lot of other media outlets, mainstream media outlets, who have done things like platforming uh, trans-exclusionary radical feminists and others in sort of a misguided both sides thing. And finally, we get back to the uh, far right uh, and the convoy occupation and the organizing that has come out of that. Um, so... When we talked about the convoy occupation, what this was was basically a three-week-long far-right occupation of areas of Ottawa around Parliament. They occupied a lot of residential areas. You know, Ottawa's not that big of a city, so uh, they managed to spread out into a lot of residential areas. And the occupation was focused mainly on COVID conspiracism and on mask and vaccine mandates. But you had all the far right were there. You know, you had the People's Party of Canada. You had uh, far right uh, groups like Canada First, Diagonal, Veterans for Freedom, uh, a lot of Quebec-based far right groups. 
there were a lot of hate symbols. Uh, people talked a lot about the swastika and Confederate flags, but those were kind of just the tip of the iceberg. There were a lot of sort of lesser known hate symbols like the red ensign flag, the Gadsden flag, the blue line flags, etc. And throughout this time, residents of Ottawa were basically taken hostage. Um, the state didn't really act because there's no level of government which actually cares about people who live in places like Centretown or Vanier. Um, and if you want more information on the convoy, uh, I would recommend checking out the Ottawa People's Commission. They have recently issued their final report. Uh, they have basically collated a lot of people's experiences of the occupation, and they did this in a way to counter some of the sort of gaslighting of Ottawa residents. Uh, we'll see the media narrative is that, no, it actually wasn't that bad, that sort of thing. But the People's Commission has done a lot of work and has done created a lot of recommendations for actions. So when we discuss the convoy, uh, I think two things that are important are, one, it didn't come out of nowhere. Um, the far right was active in street movements in Canada around anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant uh, politics throughout the 2010s. Uh, they kind of moved into resource extraction issues and did a United We Roll convoy to Ottawa in 2019. Uh, they've kind of rebranded as COVID conspiracies, but a lot of these organizers are the same people who were around from previous iterations from the anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant sort of thing. And it was sort of a watershed moment for the far right in Canada. The other thing is, um, while we've seen the convoy, we've seen the sort of far right sort of post-convoy uh, uh, pivot into a focus on anti-trans and anti-LGBT politics, we can't say that that only they only started with that recently. Uh, during the convoy occupation, houses that were flying pride flags were targeted. Um, I know there were cases of people who had pride flags having feces thrown at their houses. Um, there were I've heard some stories about uh, visibly trans or gender nonconforming people just being harassed and threatened on the street just as they went about their daily business. And there's also uh, a uh, really quite telling photo of uh, Billboard Chris, an anti-trans activist, and a number of people who would go on to run for school board, uh, waving their uh, anti-trans billboards at the convoy and receiving a lot of support. And there was also in the convoy, there was also something that was underreported was the strong kind of Christian dominionist aspect to it. There were a lot of things like Jericho walks around Parliament being planned, uh, people carrying crosses, uh, that sort of thing. So um, what happened with this whole far-right movement is that after the convoy, they continued to, because that was a huge watershed, they managed to break into the mainstream, uh, get a lot of people, you know, the the leader of the current leader of the conservative party was literally bringing them coffee and donuts uh in order to support them as they were terrorizing ottawa residents um they as they kind of tried to keep the momentum going um they continued to discuss you know their their masks vaccines those sort of issues but those issues kind of started to run out of steam as Early last year, governments started to kind of give up on public health. Uh, so as masks and vaccines became less relevant issues, they started kind of 
grasping, did a little grasping at straws and trying to find a new issue to mobilize their followers on. And they sort of settled on anti-trans and anti-LGBT issue. Uh, now, a lot of it does seem to be just based on the timing uh, imported from the states. Uh, not to say that there wasn't anti-trans, anti-LGBT uh, organizing going on in Canada before that, but uh, I see in a lot of these convoy, Facebook groups, Telegram channels, whatever, a lot of American content coming up, American language, uh, similar language uh, being shared in all these Canadian convoy groups. Um, and that that has been sort of their main focus for the last about six to nine months or so. Um, and they are the, they are in general they're the ones who are behind a lot of the uh, street level actions, the whole uh, protests against drag story times, uh, attempts to uh, cause disturbances at school boards, that sort of thing. Um, the far right also made uh, a push at the school board level in municipal elections last fall. Um, they tried to get a lot of far right people elected to school boards. Generally, they did fairly poorly. Um, in Ottawa, all of the anti-trans candidates were shut out with only one race being really close. And our one uh, anti-LGBT uh, uh, incumbent in the Catholic board was defeated. In some other cities, you'd have a few people elected, um, but I don't think they actually managed to take over any school boards. So that sort of attack was kind of beaten back, fortunately. Um, but they continue to organize around school boards. Um, we've seen uh, we've seen them do a lot of uh, we've seen, for example, Action for Canada, which I mentioned earlier, has been uh, has caused a lot of disruptions at school boards in British Columbia. Uh, they've I believe they've been banned from uh, presenting at some school boards because they uh, just cause disruptions and they just spout the hateful uh, uh hateful uh comments at school board meetings um let's see here uh yeah yeah the uh, school board stuff there's been a lot of uh organizing around that um we've also had on the drag story time front um they have really focused on the drag story times and in particular they seem to be really going after uh 2s lgbtqia youth and children uh, that's why they're going after drag story times. Uh, they're going after uh, school boards because they want to use the whole, like, please won't somebody think of the children argument to really raise the temperature and try to bring people out on their side. And, you know, it also makes things uh, much more dangerous because those arguments tend to, uh, you know, uh, increase the risk of violence and that sort of thing. Um in terms of the drag story times in Canada, they have been organizing, uh, trying to do. So they were, in, they had been trying to do a lot of protests against drag story times uh, for the past few months. Generally, uh, it would not go well for them. Um, occasionally, they would be able to get uh, drag story time events canceled just from the use of threats and that and uh, that sort of thing. However, whenever the community has mobilized to defend a drag story time, the far right has consistently been outnumbered, uh, has been, you know, uh, hindered from harassing 
attendees or and prevented from shutting the event down. Uh, they often get outnumbered by ratios as high as 10 to 1, even in uh, some very, uh, even in very conservative rural uh, communities. Um, the uh, to the LGBT allies have tended to show up uh, and defend the drag story times and really outnumber the uh, transphobic bigots who are trying to shut them down. So that is positive. However, the tactics on the far right have kind of shifted in uh, recent weeks. They are being less and less. They are content to just stand outside with their signs as they get outnumbered and blocked out by supporters. And now they've tried to be more aggressive, trying to get into the buildings, trying to actually shut the events down. Um, and of course, they've continued with things like threats and that sort of thing to try to shut down events. Um, notably, there was one in Brockville uh, before Christmas where somebody had tried to set a fire in the library uh, to try to the night before to try to stop the event and then called in a bomb threat. Uh, someone, someone called in a bomb threat during the event, but the event went on. So the people who are showing up to try to shut down drag story times and uh, trying to uh, promote, uh, trying to cause disruption to school boards have uh, similar to, has, as Eric has mentioned, they're all the same people who we recognize from the far right, the anti-vaxxers, the anti-maskers, the convoy types who've been out doing their uh, street level convoy, post-convoy protests uh, or basically uh, ever since last year. So it's, it's very much the almost the exact same people, almost to a person who are showing up to both. Thanks to both of you for giving us this overview, I want to move and just share some of the analysis um, that Misha Falk offered in her excellent article that I referred to earlier uh, about, you know, how he makes sense of the overall attack. And in that article, she argues that, I'm going to quote at length here, um, that these attacks are, are not simply about eliminating an unwanted other, but also about inscribing a particular set of gender relations as natural. This is why institutional transphobia can't be reduced to an expression of sadism, the idea that the cruelty is the point, or simply a way for Republicans to get more votes. Rather, it is a fascistic project of imposing a Christian nationalist patriarchal family order on society as a whole. It's a product of a section of the ruling class vying to extend the dominance of its sexual hegemony in our decaying capitalist society, asserting a desperate fantasy that all the suffering and uncertainty brought about by capitalist crisis, social division, and environmental collapse will go away if we simply return to, to more traditional categories of meaning. We can therefore understand our present situation, Misha Falk writes, as one of competing sexual hegemonies, a competition between the liberal tolerance view that moral panics can be repressed if selected LGBTQ ways of being are protected through formal legal equality and hate crime laws, and a reactionary sexual hegemony that seeks the criminalization or outright elimination of all modes of being that conflict with the norms of the white Christian cis-heterosexual nuclear family. I'd like to add to this, that there's a real danger, I think, that the appeal of reactionary gender and sexuality politics will grow when the living standards of middle class and working class people get much worse, uh, especially if capitalist crisis gets administered by a Democrat in the White House and in Canada by a liberal federal government. It's easy to imagine the anger of some of the people losing their jobs or homes being channeled by Republicans in the U.S. and by conservatives in the People's Party in Canada, um, who those people 
who blame liberals for, in their words, you know, they would say wasting time on woke concerns while hardworking people are suffering, that kind of a line. And in Canada, we have the additional uh, part of the picture that the, the NDP is now so closely associated with liberals that they're very unlikely, I think, to be able to channel much of the uh, anti-status quo sentiment, uh, anti-liberal party sentiment in a better direction. So I'm interested, um, Eric and Skylar, if you have any thoughts on this line of analysis that uh, Misha Falk has offered us. Misha is spot on. Um, and, um, you know, maybe just a, a clarification from, from Skylar. I, you know, I don't think that it is, I don't think that trans and queer people are a target of convenience. Um, I think there's a reason why we've seen um, an escalation in violence against women. I think there's a reason why we've seen attacks on abortion rights, not just in the U.S., but elsewhere, also wins, importantly, in other places of the world. Um, and there's a reason why we've seen attacks on trans and queer people. And I think um, Misha is, is, is getting to that. I want to actually just highlight one of the sentences that you read that really struck me. Um, it's when, when they, uh, they write, uh, is a project of a section of the ruling class vying to extend the dominance of sexual hegemony in our decaying capitalist society, asserting a desperate fantasy that all of the suffering and uncertainty brought about by a capitalist crisis, social division, and environmental collapse will simply uh, will go away and simply return to more traditional categories of meaning. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, David, to your point, I, I think that I think that it has the real potential to get worse. Um, so uh, when Silicon Valley Bank failed here a few months ago, it was a, a, a bank uh, that is a, a big sort of tech bank here in the United States, the MAGA Republicans and the right-wing pundits were absolutely falling over themselves to make the claim that the bank had failed because it had wasted investments on woke diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives and risky environmental projects. So I think that that, that logic is certainly there. On the other hand, also to Misha's point, there is a section of the ruling class that do not see queer and trans people as a threat to this sexual hegemony at all. You know, they believe that as with same-sex marriage, trans people, so long as we allow our bodies to be conformed into, you know, bent into their cisgender correlative, can be seamlessly incorporated into capitalism's productive and reproductive needs. Um, the human rights campaign, the organization I referred to earlier, uh, has produced a letter in opposition to the anti-trans legislation, and that letter has been signed by over 300 corporations, many of them Fortune 500 corporations. So, you know, I think importantly, we, you know, I'm not saying let's look to the liberal wing of the wealthy class to defend us. Absolutely, that is not the solution, um, because ultimately what that does is limit the scope of our queer and trans liberation, right? It limits it to a politics of multicultural inclusion rather than one concerned with redistribution. I think that that's uh, some of what Misha's comments are getting at. I, I, I would... Uh... I would also uh, concur with Misha. Um, I think definitely in the long term, uh, the uh, sort of reactionary far-right fascists uh, uh, are trying to essentially, uh, would like to essentially eradicate trans and non-binary people through violence and intimidation and through these uh, legal strategies. Um, I think in general, these uh, reactionaries have a lot of very, uh, very particular ideas about gender and sexuality that are very deeply seated and which just the very existence of trans and non-binary people really throws, uh, throws a wrench into that whole worldview. Um, 
I would say that in terms of the whole issue of, you know, the, the, I guess you could say the liberal establishment being concerned with wasting time on woke concerns as uh, living standards decline. Uh, I think in Canada, uh, one thing I like to say is that in general, uh, Justin Trudeau is often good at saying the right things, but not particularly good at doing the right things. So uh, I think he's good. The, the government is good at, you know, maybe rhetorically uh, showing their support for uh, LGBT communities, but they, and, and this is a pattern that we've seen on a lot of issues with this government as well, both things like environmental issues, uh, you know, they, they, they're good at rhetorically supporting LGBT communities, but not so much when it comes time to put their money in their mouth. And we've seen this pattern on environmental issues. They talk a big game about the environment and then turn around and spend billions of dollars buying a pipeline. Uh, they talk a big game about uh, truth and reconciliation, but they don't really follow through on that either. Um, and... It's interesting because people on the left criticize them for not doing the right thing and people on the right criticize them for the times where they say the right thing, but then usually not follow up. Um, I think that is a big concern. Um, we already see this is sort of the coalition that Pierre Polyev is trying to form for the next election in Canada. Um, I saw a poll recently that showed that he is getting more and more uh, union support lately. Um, as a result of uh, trying to appeal to this right populist uh, kind of agenda, while also the uh, failures of the uh, liberal government and now, I guess, the liberal NDP coalition to meaningly improve people's living standards. Um, I think that is, as you mentioned, that is a real danger going forward that uh, failure to address people's living standards will result in the the far right and right wing populists getting much stronger. And also the regarding the sort of liberal view that uh, formal legal protections can uh, address this issue. I mean, while they often can can help and are important. I think we also need to recognize that also hate crime laws and things like that can occasionally backfire. Uh, we've seen in Canada in recent years, people have been accused of anti-fascist or anti-police hate crimes. Well, thank you. And this can, I think, move us. We've spent almost an hour talking about the attacks to talking about resistance and what our analysis of the attacks on trans people means for how we should actually fight back. So who would like to start us off in talking about strategy and tactics here, how we how we resist? Uh, yeah, I, I, I can uh, speak to some of that. Um, so I think in the in the currently the most visible uh, aspects of the attacks on trans people, at least by the far right, are the uh, attacks on drag events and on other queer spaces and the uh they're organizing around the school boards. Um, what has been what has been actually quite successful in Canada has been organizing groups of drag defenders to show up and defend the drag events. Uh, we've seen uh, across Canada for the past few months, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the communities have easily outnumbered and uh, the far right. 
And we've actually seen, I think, the far right's morale has taken a hit. Uh, I can give you one good example in particular was in Peterborough in recent months. Uh, I believe it was in December, they had a drag story time, which was canceled due to threats. In January, they had a drag story time where uh, you had uh, uh, groups that announced a protest uh, and community groups organized to do a counter-protest. And you had, I think it was probably 150, 200 counter-protesters versus about 30 um, of the uh, uh, homophobic, transphobic bigots uh, protesting. Then follow that up in February, you had a similar thing, except this time because the far right was so demoralized, they could only get 15 people out for the protest. Uh, even some of the people who organized the protest in January didn't even show up to the protest in February. And then they had another one in March more recently where you had uh, dozens of people in support of the event and only uh, one uh, neo-Nazi uh, showed up to protest it. So I think by continuing to uh, defend the drag story times and other queer spaces. Uh, I think we are really sending a message to the far right that this isn't the community that you want to be messing with. And we have seen the far right uh, in some ways get very demobilized by taking, uh, you know, uh, taking massive losses week after week after week in every city across the country in Canada. Um, I think the other important thing is school boards. Um, we've seen uh, in uh, it's important to keep uh, an eye on school board elections. That's very important because there are a lot of far right candidates who are running who would be unlikely to get elected to any higher office, but who, because there's less name recognition, that sort of thing, in uh, no political parties in school board elections, they're able to get elected to school boards and uh, cause a lot of problems for LGBT students there. And they're also using school boards meetings to mobilize. We've seen in Ottawa at the past few school board meetings, uh, we have seen uh, far right anti-LGBT groups basically uh, try to either uh, disrupt those meetings or use those as a focal point of organizing. Uh, but again, uh, we were able to effectively outnumber them and uh, sort of blunt the effectiveness of their uh, trying to use the school boards to attack LGBT youth. Yeah, no, good stuff. Um, I have also been most inspired by this drag story, our defense actions. Um, the best ones that I've seen have been organized in collaboration with the drag performers themselves. So there's a high degree of coordination here. They're colorful. They're celebratory. These are artistic events that are like really aimed at creating a safe environment for queer families and their allies to attend the drag event, as well as the protest, which really in itself becomes an extension of the drag event in many ways. Um, these events have been successful in places like Jackson Heights, um, in contrast to the story I told earlier in the podcast, right? 
Um, but these events have been successful in places like Jackson Heights, where drag story defenders work with and take lessons from abortion clinic defense protesters, right? Things like learning tactics, like using big colorful umbrellas to keep the antis away, right? Again, to borrow some language from um, from the abortion clinic defenders. Um, so this this is, I think, what, what important about this description is that it's it's a protest environment where both liberals and radicals have a place, right? I think that um, it's absolutely, Skylar, to your point, it's absolutely important that the left shut down fascists and the hard right formations, like whenever they raise their ugly heads, right? We have to absolutely disrupt this. Um, but I think doing so in collaboration with liberal forces whenever we can, not to wait for them, right? Not to wait for them to call, but to construct our events in such a way that, that we're drawing out as large numbers as possible. Um, I think unions have also been an area where we're just beginning to see um, the beginnings of this fight back. So there's a, there's a definite link between the anti-trans legislation and the and the attack on educational academic freedom, right? The book banning that's going on, the the don't say gay law in Florida, the anti-woke legislation in Florida. And so in Florida, the United Faculty of Florida has been actually using its contract language, like the clauses in its contract language, to push back against the state laws. And so that stuff is sort of tied up in court right now. But but court is not the only place, right? We sort of talked a little bit about the balance between street activity, right, mobilizing a, a sort of base of, of, of left-wing and progressive people and, and allowing the, the liberal establishment to do its, 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 uh, its legal thing. So in February, this this is really brilliant stuff. In February, students at six universities in Florida walked out um, in protest of the governor's demand that these schools and universities begin sharing information about their transgender students, right? Because his, his, his sort of uh, rationale there was that, we, you know, we shouldn't be using public money to, to support people in, in their transition. Um, not that that's what's happening, but nevertheless. Um, so these students at six different universities organized these walkouts. And um, importantly, they're organized by the Dream Defenders, who are an important abolitionist, socialist, Black feminist, internationalist project, and in collaboration with the United Faculty of Florida, as well as formations like the Florida College Democrats, and um, Florida equality, right? So, so there's really room for both radical and liberal formations in this coalition kind of work. And I think that looking at um, at that uh, the, those coalitions fight back, I think points us a way forward and just gives me some a little bit of a little bit of hope, right? A little bit of inspiration as to how we might defeat this anti-trans wave. So, I think Eric made some very good points about these drag defenses. At these drag defenses. Uh, we're there for two reasons. First, we're there to ensure the physical safety of the performers, of the attendees, etc. cetera. Uh, but we're also there to show a symbolic rejection of the far right and of fascism. Um, you know, when you see 30 people on one side and 300 people on the other, that sends a strong message that these sort of fascist politics aren't tolerated in our community. Um, also, uh, and this is where we get into tactics and what's actually happening at these events. Um, you often do have uh, more liberal, uh, liberal formations, liberal groups, and more radical groups working together. Um, you'll often have, say, uh, some people kind of on the front lines holding banners, uh, you know, 
for example, there was a very successful drag defense at the National Arts Center in Ottawa back in February, where you had, um, it was not only did we outnumber them basically 300 to 30, but we were also so successful with using banners and flags as shields that we heard people commenting on the way out or after the event, like, was there even a protest? Uh, you know, we didn't even see the hateful, uh, hateful bigots because we were so effective at uh, physically blocking them out with banners and flags and things like that. Um, and you often see a situation where it has both a sort of more, uh, uh, more, some more militant uh, people kind of on the front lines. And you have also working with uh, some other people who, you know, maybe uh, more liberal, who are more inclined towards symbolic protest, who are still uh, supporting the people on the front lines by taking up space, even like having fun, having a sound system, stuff like that uh, enables, you know, this sort of dynamic where you have uh, uh, people basically going to where they're needed, uh, supporting the drag defense. And I think one thing that we've seen over the past few years is that people often learn by doing. Um, there have been a lot of counters to the far right in Ottawa over the past year and a half some more successful than others, but people have uh, really learned. And I think at these drag defenses, you have a lot of people who are, who maybe are coming in from a more uh, liberal perspective or who have an idea of it as more a symbolic protest uh, kind of thing, but they see the uh, um, more uh, radical elements uh, who are on the front lines, who are holding banners, who are physically preventing fascists from harassing families and children, and they are uh, learning by example. Um, and I think that's what has made uh, the drag defenses uh, so successful, at least in Canada, is having that sort of unity in action. And I think people are coming away with the drag defenses from drag defenses feeling empowered and feeling like they have a new appreciation for the politics of this struggle. I think that's that's really a great way of, of putting it. It's very helpful to kind of um, give us that ground level perspective. And I think it just demonstrates, as you've said, but the importance of that willingness to have joint work and that nothing there in any way means that people committed to trans liberation have to water down our politics, right? That somebody who shows up um, thinking in terms of equality and protecting people's charter rights in Canada and so on can, you know, be there alongside someone with an anti-capitalist vision of trans-liberation um, and political relationships can begin to be built in the discussions that happen um, in these events and drawing more people into involvement for building for the next action and, and so on. Uh, and given how demobilized we've generally been during the pandemic, I think every one of these, you know, little initiatives, that, all the self-activity is, is really valuable and important to nourish. Yeah. Yes, I would, I would definitely concur. That's what we've been seeing in terms of some of our big successes lately. Any thoughts about the, the question of, um, you know, you, you alluded to this a little bit before, but maybe drawing it out a little bit more in terms of uh, who to rely on and who not to rely on um, in terms of how we try to fight the, uh, the right-wing attacks? 
just because I think it's implicit in what we've been saying, but I think it's probably made worth making it a little more explicit. Yeah, I guess, I, don't, I guess I'm just sort of thinking about how to organize my thoughts on this one. I mean, yeah, I feel like we've touched on this a bit already. Like, you know, it's clear that we cannot rely on liberal politicians. It's clear that we can't rely on the segment of the capitalist class that is more friendly to queer and trans people or any kind of minoritized people. Um, I do believe that human rights legislation is important, although I do not think that it is the be-all, end-all, right? I think that if we are not able to build robust movements that um, not, and, and David, you alluded to this in one of your questions earlier, that don't only see defending trans people as a moral issue, like we're doing this because we are conscious people and, and it's the right thing to do, but can understand and drill down and see why it is that gender oppression and trans oppression as related to that is central to the way in which capital extracts value from working class people. I think that like centering that understanding is what will put trans liberation politics at the heart of our labor struggles, at the heart of our socialist struggles, at the heart of our abolitionist struggles, right? It's, it's only through that connective work um, that we will be in a position not just to beat back the backlash, but to win over the long term. Right. So I think it's that idea that this is obviously an ethical necessity, but there's you know an enormous strategic importance given what we've said about the forces that are behind this attack, right? Um, and we need to be able to, for the people who are maybe opposed to the right, but have not yet got to the point, you know, kind of recognizing the importance of the struggle around trans rights, we need to really push that, which doesn't mean in any way not talking about the substance of trans liberation, but um, that dimension, I think. So, is- I think that's, that is a really good point, right? Because it's a balancing act. At the same time, we don't want to like broad stroke everything where we're not paying attention to the particularities of trans oppression or trans experience in the world, a trans standpoint epistemology, if you will. Um, but at the same time, um, I do think that it's important to situate this in the neoliberal decline. It's important to situate it in the disinvestment in public infrastructure, right? Like it, there, I was saying before, there's a reason why there there is a gendered attack, and it's right. It's because this social welfare net. There is no social welfare net. It's it's women. It's queer people. It's it's working class people. Like we are we are we are required to perform social reproductive labor at a level that is absolutely exhausting and unsustainable. And so how does the state or right-wing elements of the state sort of coerce us into doing this? It's through gender discipline, right? And there are different forms of gender discipline. And this this is just one really acute form of it. Um, so absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I would also say uh, maybe take this back to the old slogan, uh, we keep us safe. Um, I think who we definitely cannot rely on to keep us safe are uh, the state and the police. Um, we've seen, we obviously have plenty of experiences with that in Ottawa with the convoy occupation. Uh, we've also seen, for example, at the uh, at the successful drag defense that we had at the National Arts Center um, when the uh, uh, anti-trans uh, or sorry, when the anti-LGBT folks who showed up, uh, showed up early, uh, and we didn't quite have the numbers yet, and it was a little touch and go, but what the police wanted to do was they wanted to separate us in such a way that you would have uh, drag defenders on one side, and uh, uh, the anti-LGBT uh, 
fascists on the other side and force the families who are attending the story time to run a gauntlet in between the two so that the police would essentially enable the uh, anti-LGBT groups to scream profanities and harassment and abuse at families and small children. Fortunately, we were able to hold our ground long enough that numbers started showing up and people started arriving with more banners and flags and we were able to draw the line in such a way that we had that wasn't possible. We had a strong banner line and we had uh, the pathway to the entrance to the building be behind our lines. Um, so the uh, the state and the police aren't the ones who are going to be able to keep us safe. Um, they have totally failed during the convoy uh, occupation of Ottawa and they uh, continue to often, uh, you know, they often try, to, they often side with the uh, far right in these sorts of things. Um, that's also important because we're seeing one of the responses to this be the creation of bubble zones in, in Calgary and in Ontario uh, being, propo being proposed in Ontario, uh, similar to abortion clinic bubble zones. Um, but we still need to continue mobilizing to uh, keep our, our communities safe, uh, even in spite of that. Um, oh, yes. And in terms of liberal politicians, um, um, I think sometimes, uh, you know, more liberal politicians uh, often do show up and they do show up to support drag defenses, but often in a more symbolic way um, rather than, uh, you know, being there on the front lines with the banners and, uh, you know, we maybe accept their support, but we're also uh, making sure that we kind of keep our eyes on the ball. Um, if I could just share a few um, anecdotes in, in reaction and then um, I'll probably have to wrap up shortly, but I wanted to share, you know, that I really echo your, your caution um, about the police. Um, the uh, right wing protests in Akron, Ohio, um, which saw hundreds of Proud Boys members and white supremacists, uh, the outcome of that was that the organizer of the very modest um, pro-drag queen side was the was the individual that ended up in handcuffs that day, right? Uh, not not the folks who are, who are screaming, right, pedophiles get the rope. Um, the other thing that I, I want to center is the fact that queer and trans people um, have experienced histories of bias and abuse, right? Discrimination by law enforcement. Um, I was reading a statistic uh, from the Trans Equality Project. I believe I can double check that for you. 47% of Black transgender people report being incarcerated at some point in their lives. Right? So I think it's those sort of statistics that we also want to center, like when we're thinking about or when we're arguing about whether or not the police are a viable solution, perhaps to folks who have not yet drawn those conclusions for themselves. Um, I would also uh, add to that, you know, another very good example of this sort of uh, thing is the uh, Hamilton Pride defense in 2019, where uh, a lot of pride defenders were assaulted by fascists, and a lot of them ended up facing repression from the police uh, as a consequence for their uh, successful uh, pride defense. For sure. All right. Well, thanks. We've covered a lot of ground. Any last thoughts you'd like to offer before we wrap up? Um, I would say that, uh, you know, we're entering into what is a very scary time for uh, uh 
trans and LGBT people. And I would just emphasize the importance of, of showing up, of understanding uh, the issues. Um, I think a lot of the time uh, we're seeing the far right is using a lot of wedge issues, uh, such as, you know, uh, women's sports or uh, trying to use issues around children, that sort of thing. Um, and by being able to speak out against uh, these uh, the issues when it's kind of the thin edge of the wedge, we can hopefully blunt this attack on uh, trans and LGBT uh, populations. And I think it's important for everyone to understand the issues and to, you know, uh, to counter uh, anti-trans narratives in conversation, in the media, uh, online, that sort of thing, and also to show up on the ground when you're needed. Yeah, I guess I'd just close by, you know, saying thank you. I've enjoyed being in conversation with you, Skylar and David. Um, I think uh, <laughs> one, I want to end positive, right? I want to end end with a little bit of hope. I always have to hold a little bit of place for hope. and one thing that I'm hopeful about is that our left and socialist spaces are taking more seriously the task of understanding queer and trans oppression um, and centering it in a way that is not a question of moralism, right, but truly trying to understand the way in which that fits into a political uh, economic framework. Um, so I'm, I'm feeling inspired by that. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word-of-mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com. <laughs>